Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 7 on human rights and drug policy reform. I spoke to Charlotte Walsh and our very own Melissa Bone on this topic. So Charlotte has decades of experience working on human rights-based approaches within plant medicine communities. So looking at psychedelics such as ayahuasca and magic mushrooms. And also our very own Melissa Bone and her research within cannabis social clubs. We chat all things activism, human rights and of course the future of drug policy. Okay, so welcome listeners to episode seven of our podcast. Today, our guests are Melissa Bone and Charlotte Walsh. They both work at Leicester Law School and their research looks at human rights perspectives on drug policy. They'll give much more detail on this during the episode. So welcome to Charlotte and Melissa. So Charlotte, we will go to you first, because our listeners know about Melissa, but I'll also let Melissa talk about how she got into the field. But can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work and how you got into the drug policy field? As a sort of broad umbrella, I'm interested in looking at drug policy through the lens of human rights. So seeing whether or not drug policy conflicts with um, with human rights. In terms of how I became interested in drug policy, I grew up just on the outskirts of Manchester. So I was involved in the very early rave scene. I used to go to the warehouse parties in Blackburn and to um, the Hacienda and conspiracy. And it was a scene that was very heavily policed. You know, there were there were police everywhere. There were raids all the time. Cars were stopped. And it was also a scene that was incredibly peaceful. The drugs of choice were acid and ecstasy and nobody drank then. You know, it was was a thing that the people who went raving didn't drink. That's something that the alcohol companies put paid to by producing alcohol pops in later years. But at the time, nobody drank. So it was very peaceful. There was no aggression. And I think that was when I just started to really think about why it was that the police were sort of cracking down on the people who weren't causing any trouble as against um, the people who really were causing trouble, the people who were sort of marauding around the city centre who were were drunk. And I think that was what what first sort of um, got me interested in drug policy um, was that kind of lived experience uh, in, in a sense sort of various other things from there so there was the um you know the criminal justice and public order act which criminalized repetitive beats and that was the first sort of protest I went on we were all sort of dancing outside the town hall in Manchester to protest against it it was like a save the ravers protest um so yeah that that was the origins of my interest in in drug policy and then I went to um to Manchester University to study law um largely inspired by that but we didn't actually study drug policy um, or look at the drug laws at all. When I later became a a legal academic, 
then one of my main aims was that I wanted to sort of establish the drug policy course that I wish that I had had and and for that to be sort of inspired by my own research. Amazing. And we'll go uh, a bit more into kind of activism and the policy field and that kind of stuff later on. But Melissa, over to you. Yeah, so I'm the lucky recipient of being able to take Charlotte's course. So so that's how I got into it in uh, my final year of an undergrad. So Charlotte does a criminology course at the University of Leicester and there's a drug policy module within that. Um, And I naively kind of went into that drug policy module or or just with law in general. I always thought that they were laws were designed to protect us from harm. Whereas the more I learned on Charlotte's course, the more I was able to see that prohibition did the exact opposite. So that kind of just lit this fire under me that, you know, this isn't right. Something needs to change here. Uh, and then I was all set to be a solicitor before I did Charlotte's course, and, <laughs> and which is a fantastic career path, don't get me wrong, but I'm just so glad that I didn't do that. Because <laughs> I ended up writing my final year essay. It was around the time that David Nook got sacked and that there was the methadone moral panic. Um, oh, and I'd, I just loved it. I found that I was writing it for fun. And I just thought if I could make a career out of this and actually in some small way affect change in a positive way here, then that's that's essentially what I want to do. So I then went on and did a master's in applied criminology um, and I worked uh, at a probation service there and I evaluated how effective um, the probation services peer mentor scheme was, which basically involves ex-service users mentoring current service users to try and help them on the road to recovery. And then for my PhD, I kind of went back into looking at drug policy from a human rights perspective, having been inspired by Charlotte's course. Amazing. And that's so good to hear. So, I mean, how wonderful to have you on this podcast episode (laughs) and how, you know, I I think this is one of the big, wonderful things about my kind of foray into academia is that you're inspired by people, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, things you think that things are a certain way and then you start to learn and you're inspired by the people around you. And I think that is a really wonderful thing about education in general. So it's lovely to have you both here. Um, so basically, really wanted to have a, a, an episode looking at human rights, because I think possibly the kind of public health based arguments often dominate drug policy reform, you know, kind of harm reduction, safer use support for those who become addicted. So what are the human rights-based arguments for for drug policy reform then? Charlotte, I'm going to go to you first. Yeah, just just to sort of say something about uh, Melissa as a student. She was was a fantastic student. (laughs) Like, Like you're saying, Rebecca, when academia works well, I think it's when we're all learning from one another. And you know, when you have those students where even though you're teaching something that you've taught many times, they they speak about them and ask questions that make you think about it more. So I really had that experience with Mal and, you know, continue to to have it. I always say she's my sort of greatest achievement is Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I think one of the things that's interesting in thinking about drug policy is it, it gets you quite quickly, I think, right down to the foundation of what the criminal law is for. I come from a, a liberal perspective and, you know, our laws are, are, are ostensibly premised in that liberal perspective in the sense that the criminal law is supposed to be about preventing harm. And I think from a liberal perspective, that needs to be harm to others. 
Um, and it also needs to be a sort of significant level of harm or risk of harm, because otherwise, if it's not, you shouldn't be using you know, the sledgehammer of the criminal law. You should be using education. That liberal perspective is embodied in our human rights protections. That's what they do. They kind of ring fence our um, sort of autonomy rights predominantly is what, what I'm talking about here. I mean, I guess as a, as a tangent, you know, the, the drug laws breach all kinds of human rights if we look at them on a, on a global scale. You know, so for instance, there's the death penalty for drug offences. Lots of drug treatment regimes are really tortured by another name. But I've always been really interested in the, the way in which the, the, the prohibitive drug laws are not liberal. They're not premised in harm. And so therefore, they kind of they bump up against our human rights protections, which are um, which are liberal. So so just to, to, to give an example in terms of the, the drug laws. So, you know, famously, and Melissa just um, mentioned David Nutt and his sacking, but he, he's made him in a sort of team of scientists using that term broadly, um, you know, looked at the harms caused by different substances, including legal ones. And they show that the Misuse of Drugs Act isn't predicated in evidence. The psychedelics, which is what I'm particularly interested in, are a very, very low risk of harm. And yet they're, they're class A, the highest level of classification in the Misuse of Drugs Act. I think then you, you sort of question what the drug laws are rooted in. There seems to be, I, I think, a very strong flavour of paternalism, you know, is, that's written into the Misuse of Drugs Act, is that it's to protect you as well as others. And I think I sort of balk at that from a liberal perspective anyway, because I don't think it's the state's terrain to be telling us what we should prioritise in terms of our, our, our sort of choices as regards what we ingest. And so then you can sort of start to see how you're transgressing human rights. So whether that be, you know, the right, the right to sort of self-creation more broadly, which might fall under um, sort of privacy, privacy rights. And, um, and I'm really interested in the, the right to, to freedom of thought um, which is sometimes referred to as um, cognitive liberty. That's more of a sort of US term, but I was really, really inspired by the writings of Richard Glenn Boyer, who writes in the Journal of Cognitive Liberty, which is available online, and, and him and, and various other people um, were sort of looking at this idea of the American drug laws as breaching cognitive liberty. And I remember reading that and it being like, this is what I've been trying to sort of express. Um, and then I thought, well, how does this work in the European context? So they're obviously looking at how it works with the American constitution. And I was interested in thinking about how our drug laws sort of bump up against the European Convention on, on Human Rights. We've not really talked about psychedelics so much and cognitive liberty and, um, you know, freedoms of expression and things like that. So it's really good to bring that in. Melissa, anything that you um, would like to add there in terms of human rights based arguments? Yeah, just that, you know, Charlotte has the issue, which I also have about the misuse of drug DAC being fundamentally quite paternalistic and moralistic. Uh, and lots of people, I think, historically, when they've thought about human rights in the drug policy realm, um, they thought about harm reduction. 
So they are focusing on reducing harm. And you could say that harm reduction is human rights in practice and that it is a key linchpin for drug policy. And that's really what we've kind of focused on um, for a couple of decades anyway, when harm reduction was first kind of um, coming to the forefront in like the 80s and stuff. Uh, But I would argue that thinking about human rights purely in terms of harm reduction, which we are moving away from, it's not just about harm reduction anymore. And Charlotte's really eloquently put that argument forward. Um, Because I would say ultimately harm reduction is compatible with drug prohibition. It's compatible with paternalism and moralism to a certain extent. Um, because you can actually enact harm reduction policies within a prohibitionist framework. And that's what we have at the moment, you know, and that's what we have all around the world. Whereas these autonomy based arguments that Charlotte's talking about, like the right to self-create, the right to freedom of thought, the right to privacy, the right to freely develop your own personality. They threaten the idea of prohibition to the greatest degree, I would say, because they apply to everybody. So they're really powerful because they then place the burden on the state to justify their policy of prohibition. Whereas if you're arguing for a human right to use drugs on other grounds, because historically when I first, well, when I first started learning about this and doing Charlotte's course, the only grounds that people were really able to successfully argue uh, that they have a human right to use certain substances were on sort of health grounds or religious grounds. Like these autonomy-based arguments weren't really successful. Even when I first started doing my PhD, they weren't really recognised to the extent that they're starting to be now. Um, And I just think that's really exciting, to be honest. Um, And you can see that happening with recent court cases in Mexico and South Africa. You know, those autonomy-based arguments were put towards the constitutional and supreme courts there and the government was required then the state was required to justify whether an absolute ban on cannabis was constitutional Um, so the onus was placed on the state so I just think that autonomy-based arguments are very important particularly because as well although you know we do use drugs on health-based grounds on religious grounds etc if you are arguing for a right to use substances on those grounds there is kind of an implicit acceptance potentially of of prohibition um, because you're just arguing for an acceptance to be made for you, really an exception, sorry, to be made for you, for you to use these substances on those on those grounds. It's really interesting to hear you both talk from your disciplines and backgrounds and grounding and just to link that to some of the um, emerging findings that we're having from the project. You know, I've done quite a few interviews now with people and particularly, you know, people who are using cannabis medicinally and people who are using psychedelics as well, all different types of drugs, but just this essence of, I want to be left alone. (laughs) You know, like it's, you get a key kind of message within people's uh, narratives. They, They want to be left alone and they want to be able to do things and you know consume substances that are making them better in some kind of way enhancement you know my kind of work has looked at enhancement as well so kind of going in a bit more detail about your research so Charlotte I know that you're kind of connected to plant-based medicine communities can you tell us a bit more about that and about your research there Um, as I said I grew up just outside Manchester in Cheshire and um, magic mushrooms were uh, everywhere. Talk about plant medicines, but the magic mushrooms are the sort of indigenous, well, they're not exactly plant medicines, fungi medicines of this um, of this country. And so I'd, I'd long been interested in them. And, and when I started writing about them, it was when the mushrooms themselves were still um, technically 
legal and it was only due to sort of technicalities of the law I won't go into but but it was only problematic if you prepared your magic mushrooms in some way and and then you could be prosecuted for having them um, and so there was all this sort of torturous case law looking at what constituted preparation and I was I was sort of writing about this and I was writing about how it was a real abusive process because the law was unclear people couldn't predict when they were transgressing the law and when they weren't, which is, you know, fundamental to the rule of law. So I was writing about this in, in relation to magic mushrooms. And in fact, there, there had been a case where the judge threw out the case and she said, this is an abusive process because nobody knows what's going on. There's conflicting messages coming from the Home Office, from customs. And so that was one of the reasons that they then made magic mushrooms themselves illegal and this sort of fuzziness in the law was got rid of in the case of magic mushrooms then when I, I sort of published my my writings on what had happened with magic mushrooms I started getting people contacting me who were involved in reputed for using plant medicines or for supplying plant medicines and they would ask me well can we use your sort of abusive process arguments because the law is similarly unclear about the other plant medicines then there was a few years where I was sort of very very informally but that people would would contact me and there's a little team of us who would help them, along with their, their lawyers, obviously, would help them kind of work up their defence. Um, and so I guess I, I've been kind of interested in, in plant medicines in the sort of the reactive way of how can we, um, how can we avoid prosecution? Um, that sort of aspect of what I was interested in, in and my work has basically been shut down by the Psychoactive Substances Act because it just renders everything uncategorically um, illegal apart from alcohol and tobacco but um, so that you know those those sort of loopholes um, don't exist anymore um, which uh, which I think is a is a huge problem but I mean just the very idea of prohibiting plants strikes me as absolutely ludicrous you know I'm a, I'm a yogi I think the most important experience that we can have in life is is the mystical experience like that recognition that we're not individuals that we're part of an interwoven whole um and that when you know that we're not who we think we are and for many people plant medicines is is one of the ways in which they can they can have that experience and so i always think this that People can really trivialise people who are trying to end prohibition, particularly if you're coming from a rights-based angle, because they will sort of minimise it to you're arguing for the right to take drugs. And I think it's not that at all. You know, for one thing, you're sort of arguing about your right to freedom and, and what is the legitimate reach of the state. But also, I think there is nothing trivial about the experiences that people can have on plant medicines. They can completely shift your cosmology, you know, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with other people, your relationship with the environment. I I think that's really significant. And, you, you know, these experiences, there's, there's good information that they're the sort of the substrate of most of our main religions, you know, at the heart of them. There is often, um, you know, plant medicine use. Um, so I guess just I, I think it's worth emphasising that point. I think what's been outlawed is 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 hugely hugely significant. In in recent years, one of the the other things I've been really interested in and sort of talking with people who work in the plant medicine community about is 
sort of like thinking more proactively about ways forward. So, well, first of all, what are the models of working with plant medicines? What, what's kind of best practice for working with plant medicines coming from the communities who actually do, um, who do this work with a view to if we if if we move towards the end of prohibition, if we move towards some form of regulation, that you want to have a clear idea of what you want that to look like. Because if if regulatory models are going to come in, the people who are bringing them in don't know anything about this world. So if you're prepared and you have good ideas as regards what regulation should look like, where it should come from, then at least you've got a chance of kind of feeding into that process. Um, and, and even if prohibition doesn't end and we don't move towards a, a, a regulatory system, it's still good to kind of think about, you know, what best practices and learn from one another and so forth. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're the, the, the two sort of strands of what I'm predominantly interested in. And fascin absolutely fascinating how that's kind of developed over time. And I'm, I, I think certainly around kind of plants, you know, these things are in nature as well, you know, like it's prohibiting nature. It seems bonkers, you know, like it's just, yeah, so it's fascinating to see how your work's developed in that way. Melissa, your work with Cannabis Social Clubs uh, mainly, I mean, uh, yeah, please tell us more. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I suppose just to kind of, you know, go on with the point that you and Charlotte just made there, that I remember thinking the same thing. It's just like, but it grows in the ground. Like it grows in the ground. How <laughs> how are we being controlled here in relation to something that grows in there? So I got more interested in cannabis, I suppose, in cannabis communities and uh, related to that cannabis social clubs. So I got really interested in this model Oh, about 10 years ago now, when it was first created in the UK uh, by Greg Dehoe, who uh, is the chair of the UK's Cannabis Social Club uh, Federation. Uh, and the more I learned about this model, the more uh, I thought it's actually got potential here when we do move to sort of uh, a regulatory framework for cannabis. So just to give you a bit of a background about the model then, it started in Spain in the early 90s and it's created to try and exploit a legal loophole in Spanish law where actually possession of cannabis for personal use and social supply wasn't criminalised. So Spanish activists recognised that and they wanted to try and push the boundaries of that law. So what they did is they created the cannabis social club model where you know, a closed group of people would grow cannabis together in a sort of closed setting and they would share it amongst their members. Um, and they did have some success with that as the sort of legal argument that, you know, their clubs were legitimate in the early uh, 90s. And they had some success uh, arguing that in court because it was regarded that if they were having closed circle use, then that's not a criminal offence. It doesn't contravene the Spanish criminal code. Uh, but that position has since changed since 2015. Like cannabis social clubs are seen as being illegal in Spain. But what I do love about the model is that it is developed from the grassroots. So it's developed from the bottom up, from the activists themselves. And they're the ones in control of the model. And that's so rare because often when we're talking about regulatory models for drugs, be it alcohol, tobacco, illicit substances. It's either businesses, it's the medical establishment, it's the government that are controlling our actions or controlling how those substances are regulated. Whereas having control over how cannabis is produced and distributed among the members themselves, I think that's rare. And I think drug policy reformers are starting to talk more and more about social equity models 
And I think the cannabis social club model does have a lot to potentially offer here um, so that the cannabis industry in particular, which is where my work sort of focuses, isn't just dominated by wealthy white men and just a few wealthy white men, really. Um, and in order for that to be the case, I think cannabis social clubs and cannabis cooperatives could potentially be part of the answer here, along with the ability to be able to grow your own. Um, so as part of the work that I've been doing with cannabis social clubs, I've been working with academics in Spain and, uh, and in Belgium. And we've recently written an article um, which is called Mapping the Legal Landscape of Cannabis Social Clubs Across Europe. And that's published in the European Journal of Criminology um, and it is open access as well. So anyone uh, can read it internationally. There hasn't really been that sort of coalition. And I think part of that is because there's a tension here between some of the clubs that are advocating a human rights ethos and they want their model to work the way it did in the early 90s. So it is kind of altruistic. It's just, you know, a closed group of people growing and distributing it amongst themselves. There's no profit involved. Whereas other cannabis clubs are like, no, actually, I want in on the action here. I can see that the cannabis industry is going to be big. I want I want to make money off this. Uh, and then you'll have other clubs as well that are working kind of underground that we've sort of called shadow clubs. And we, we have, as you can uh, appreciate by the name, we've struggled to get access to those clubs. And they want cannabis to remain illegal because they can make a lot of profit that way as well. And, you know, we alluded to that. Mike alluded to that in um, episode four when he was talking about the drug supply networks. So I think the kind of a social club model on a micro level, it kind of reflects the tension that you see more broadly in the cannabis reform arena between sort of businesses and commercial interests and the interests of like human rights advocates that they have in wanting to legalise this, this plant. So they both support regulation and legalisation, but they might have very different ideas as to how that should work in practice. Because I know the word social equity is kind of being more and more used. Can you explain what that term actually means for people? Yeah, so I suppose it's just to ensure that the people who are most disproportionately affected by drug prohibition have actually got a seat at the table. So like in the US in particular, um, they've been talking about that in relation to ensuring that people of colour have, uh, have a seat at the table and that people, um, that businesses, uh, black businesses are given sort of licences or given money um, to help them um, have have a kind of foot in the door really in, in the cannabis industry. Yeah, so it's just to ensure that people that might not usually get a say and might not usually be able to influence kind of policy or be able to have a cannabis business themselves are able to do so. Yeah, definitely. So on to, this nicely fits us on to kind of activism, I think. So do you do you see yourselves as activists within the drug policy movement? Um, and do you think that's important for people who work in drug policy to be activists? Yeah, I mean, I guess like with anything, it depends how you define the term. You know, I'm not manning the barricades, but I think there's a lot to be said for just consciousness raising. And, th and that could be just simply through your writing. You know, I think I just think what we all have to do is find out what our strengths are and deploy them so we're making some kind of difference in the world and if you're a fantastic researcher and you you love writing but that's all you want to do then fine you know somebody who's a fantastic speaker is going to take your work and and use it to bolster their arguments if you want to you know really kind of like get down in it then you can do that too so I think yeah it depends how you do define the term 
And I think more importantly, like rather than getting caught up in labels, I just sort of think like we're all we're all just strands in a tapestry and um, you never know what, like going back to what we were saying at the outset, you know, I, I didn't know when I was giving that lecture to Melissa that it would have this impact on her and then all the things that she's done that have had an impact on me. So I think anything that you're doing, so long as you're doing your best and you find what you're good at and then just do it to the best of your ability. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, Melissa yeah that really like find what you care about what you're passionate about and and do that um I for me personally I think it was going to be a bit inevitable that I I was going to be a bit of an academic activist because you did just get me so fired up Charlotte on that (laughs) on that course you know about the failings of drug prohibition so I kind of knew that (laughs) I would be because I got so fired up because I was like this policy is wrong this policy needs to change so there is kind of an element of activism within that, I suppose. And I think when you start looking at things from a human rights perspective, there is an inevitable sort of element of activism there as well, because human rights by their very nature, they're sort of value driven, they're political, they're all about challenging traditional hierarchies and traditional power structures and about enhancing freedoms for everybody. So yeah, I, I would say I am a little bit of an academic activist. If you were to ask though, Uh, as to whether academics should be activists. Uh, There is obviously that argument, isn't there, in relation to, you know, you need to be objective in academia. It's important to be objective. But to that, I would say that we've kind of had the evidence for decades that prohibition causes more harm. And I would say evidence-based policies never really value free. And I would say prohibitionists have also had the advantage for decades because they've been able to argue their position from a sort of moralistic perspective and they've been able to appeal to people's emotions Uh, Even just the way the UN conventions are written, they're very moralistic, very emotive. Um, And I think drug policy reformers are starting to catch up to that idea and starting to catch up to the idea that there is power in human storytelling. And there is power in sort of emotive appeals and in moral arguments. Um, So to a certain extent, I think that you need moral arguments alongside the evidence to affect change here. And of course, as academics, you do need to focus on the evidence as well. I think the two can work hand in hand quite nicely together. So on to breaking convention and Charlotte I remember you were at my presentation I don't know whether you remember being at my presentation and that's where I first met you and Melissa you were there as well. Could you say a little bit more about breaking convention? Yeah and so so breaking convention is a multidisciplinary conference um, looking at psychedelics that's on once every two years it started in 2011 it was actually meant to be its 10 year anniversary this year but they've actually decided to delay it and it's it's a really incredible event I think it it sort of shows um the way in which psychedelics feed into almost every domain in life and so you'll just get this real mixture of people there so there'll be academic people there there might be people um like us who are there because we work in academia we work in 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 drug policy so in the sort of the legal or the criminological field there'll also be i mentioned neuroscience earlier there'll be the neuroscientists talking about their findings from um you know scanning people's brains when they're on psychedelics there'll be the the psychedelic psychotherapists who are involved in in the trials using psychedelics for you know depression ptsd and so forth there'll be just you know sort of eccentric pirate hippies who've you know come along for the knowledge and and come along for the ride there's incredible art 
Um, there's musicians, there's people talking about psychedelics in literature, just, you know, just on and on and on. People are involved in, in all kinds of research in psychedelics in all sorts of different ways. So it's really, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing event. I kind of emerged out of the is that right? Kent, Kent University Psychedelic um, Society, which was the first psychedelic society in the UK, as I understand it, and um, and then him and various others like David Luke and um, Cameron Adams and, uh, and a few other people set up the first breaking convention, um, which was in Canterbury in, in 2011. And um, I was invited to um, to speak there, and um, it it really changed my world. You know, um, I've been in academia for I mean already for for quite a long time since like 1997. But whenever I'd gone to conferences, I I never felt like I quite sort of fitted. I always you know I I never felt quite right. And um, and then it went to breaking convention. And I was like. <sighs> like these are my people I found my tribe thank god you know <laughs> and um yeah I've made some of the you know the best friends I've ever had there such such interesting people who've led such um rich lives such good stories that you hear you know there's this big lawn outside and just the tales that get told on that lawn and and sort of uh, you know into the into the into the night so yeah it's, it's um it, it's amazing I've been actually you know this is in, so in 2006 I went to um, my first psychedelic, like a big multidisciplinary conference in Basel in Switzerland, and it was to celebrate the 100th birthday of Albert Hoffman, who um, first synthesized LSD. And um, so I'd had that experience of having all these incredible people around me and watching all these amazing talks. And I was just like, wow, you know, and, and, I, and I just sort of thought, I wish I was part of that world and I wish that world was more accessible. And then suddenly, poof, you know, like breaking convention, uh, breaking convention sprung up. So. Yeah. And as you say, like the, I, I, a similar experience going there, I was like, wow, there are so many people working, um, you know, within the kind of drug policy the, or the psychedelics field, like so many people, science, anthropology, you know, cultural studies, law, like just the coming together of people who are all doing such interesting things. Melissa, is there anything you would like to add about Breaking oh. Convention? <laughs> Just that I miss it so much. <laughs> Absolutely love it. It's like half academic conference, half one of the best festivals you'll go to. It, it, it is just brilliant. And you don't have to be an academic to go. Like, that's the beauty of it as well. Like you said, it's people from all walks of life. So yeah, it's just absolutely fantastic. And I don't know when the next one is, just in case any of our listeners uh, would like to attend. It's, it's normally Greenwich now. And, and so it'll be like next summer. Next Greenwich. summer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Keep your eye out for it. <laughs> yeah. Melissa, you introduced me to it. Um, yeah, people look it up try, if there's a mailing list to try and get to it. So last few questions then. But what are, are the key things that you think need to change to make drug policy better in the future? It, it, it's sort of a recap of the things that we've been saying. So I think that we should respect people's human rights and I think in order to do that, we need to dismantle the prohibitive regime. And then we need to think very carefully about what what systems then replace that. And I guess for me, I want the 
the, the, the systems, the models that emerge to be true to the psychedelic vision. So to be informed by people who are actively involved and who know what it is that they're talking about, going back to what you were saying about social equity, social justice, I think that's been one of them again one of the most surprising and one of the most thrilling developments in drug policy in recent years is that that not only that prohibition is starting to crumble but that as part of that the you know in the best examples we're thinking about well how can we address some of the harms that prohibition has caused and try and at least somewhat level the playing field so I think that you know that sort of accessibility social justice needs to be part of any um, any new models um, and I think also just this move towards certainly as pertains to psychedelics like the focus on benefits so that how can we best embed these substances in the world in a way that maximizes their benefits for people and then you know the follow-on from that would be benefits for broader society um and i think you know i think one of the the things that there there is as melissa was saying there has been this shift towards these autonomy rights being taken more seriously and i think it 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 creates an important psychological shift if when you're making these arguments you're coming from the position of well, actually, it's it's not the state's role to tell us what substances we should be ingesting. And if you come from that starting point, I think it then changes how you, how, you know how the conversation progresses from there. Because you're not coming from a place of oh, well, what you give us is kind of a favour that we need to earn. It's more well, you know, this is you know this is not a domain you should have been in in the first place. Yeah. Melissa. Yeah, I completely 100% agree with that. Unfortunately, as they are still in that domain, I would say that we need to have more bravery from them, from politicians. Like the Black Review got published just this week. So the Black Review, brilliant. It was really focused on kind of prevention, treatment, recovery, really great initiatives, very compassionate. But, but there was a huge elephant in the room because we, the Black Review, they didn't have the remit to talk about the legal framework. So they couldn't look at the impact that prohibition has had on people who use drugs and that criminalisation has on people who use drugs. So we need that kind of bravery. That remit needs to be expanded. I got the sense through reading that report and through listening to Dame Carol Black on the webinar when she was launching it that you know, that was the elephant in the room. There was a kind of constraint there because they weren't able to deal with those aspects of drug policy. And that's going to be integral going forward. That's that's so important. So I think as a first step, you need to decriminalise the possession for personal use of all substances. And that's actually really easy to do. You just have to repeal one section of the, the Misuse of Drugs Act. That would deal with a lot of the issues that we've got with stop and search as well and um, disproportionate policing practices and how uh, black people, people of colour are disproportionately stopped and searched. Uh, And then you look at these regulatory models that Charlotte and I have been discussing. So I think decriminalisation and regulation, they support each other. They don't have to be opposing. Um, And I think we can learn lessons from Canada, uh, from the US particularly Canada as well, because they've got regulation, and I'm just speaking about cannabis here, but they do have uh, cannabis regulation, but at the same time, they don't have a decriminalisation proposal that's been enacted. So um, cannabis that's not uh, accessed through kind of the legal regulatory market is still illicit, and you can be prosecuted for that. So you need to have both, I think, to work in tandem with each other. 
you also need to, this feeds back to what Charlotte was saying, we need to accept as a society that drug use has always occurred and will always occur. Like it's pretty much occurred across all times, all places. Uh, and some academics have argued as well that we have this innate desire to alter our consciousness. Uh, Ronald Stegill has uh, written a really great book on this that I read uh, through my PhD. Uh, it's in called Intoxication, the Universal Drive for Mind-Altering Substances. Um, and in the book, he gives examples of like little kids running around to get dizzy. You know, even little kids want to kind of alter their conscious states. Like even, in, you know, animals in the animal kingdom, look at cats with catnip. Like it is, <laughs> we have this sort of innate desire. So what we really need to think about is how do you enhance the benefits, like what Charlotte was saying, and how do you mitigate the risks that are involved? And that's when you're really moving towards having like a proper grown up conversation about this. Can I just, I just wanted to, to follow on from what you're saying, Melissa, absolutely agree with everything that you're saying. And I think, you know, I think when it comes to going back to what you were saying about politicians, and there is obviously this intransigence in, in this country, but I don't think that, I mean, for one, there are some politicians who have certainly moved on this. You know, I was reading mm. that, that debate in Parliament just a few weeks ago, and some of that, you know, there was lots of very progressive um, elements yeah. um, contributing to that debate. Um, but also, I think that even the more um, sort of cynical politicians, I don't think they're actually ideologically wedded to prohibition. I think they they just calculate that that's what the majority of people in England want. That's certainly, you know, the, 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 the sort of infamous like fear of the Daily Mail. Um, and so I think that it you know, anything that we can do to change the conversation on drugs, which is what, you know, Breaking Convention is doing, and it's what all the scientific research is doing, it's what your podcasts and your, your research is doing, then, then that will change people's minds, and people's minds are changing. And then once that happens, then the laws, you know, the laws will yeah. change. We're in a slightly different or sort of awkward situation in the UK because our power is so centralised. And so it means that even though there can be um, positive shifts that come from the grassroots, they're often, you know, not sort of as sweeping as they might be in the, the US with the state system, for example. You know, I think I just think of, you know, what's happening in the States as just a real sort of, you know, like call to optimism, because if it can happen there, then it can happen anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I would completely agree with that as well. There are a number of very, like, brilliant politicians in this country, especially that are, you know, working with Transform with the 50 Years of Failure campaign and stuff. So that is, that is definitely, yeah, definitely the case. But a lot of the time, like what you said, they kind of are driven more by what the public want or what they perceive the public to be in favour of. So it is really about changing those hearts and minds and stuff through doing the things that, that we're doing, yeah. And I really like how you've both talked about optimism as well, because that's one of the questions I like to end on. And Charlotte, you said we've got a moral duty to be optimistic. Uh, and I really, really like that. I think that's, uh, I really believe in that myself as well. Is there anything you want to say around kind of optimism and um, that things are going to change? What's your optimism like? I think we're on the right side of history. And so I think ultimately things will, will um go in our direction. I agree with that and I think just the public mindset shifted so much just in the last sort of 10 years or so that I've been studying this. 
Yeah, and I think that human rights, public health, social equity, they all need to be at the heart of reform as well. Um, and I think we do still have a lot of work to do to ensure that they are at the heart of reform. But I am really kind of heartened when I look at the work that various activists are doing, that academics are doing, that even our project supporters for drug policy voices like Transform, Release, Drug Science, they all advocate those principles. So, yeah, that gives me a lot of hope as well. Excellent. And what a lovely way to end. Thank you so much for being part of this episode um, and really bringing, you know, the, the podcast round to, you know, thinking about the law, thinking about rights, thinking about activism and, you know, kind of regulation and paths forward. You're both very inspiring to me. And um, yes, thank you for being part of uh, the podcast. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. (laughs) 